Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast exploring the latest thinking and key issues for leaders and those aspiring to lead. I'm Vila Rollins, Executive Director of the London Business School Leadership Institute. I'll be the host of a series of episodes of Leadership Playbook focusing on various aspects of leadership. In this episode, we'll focus on the topic of ethics and compliance. My guest today is Nick Herons. Nick is an expert in business ethics and compliance and is currently chief ethics and compliance officer for the multinational pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline. Nick is a member of the corporate executive team reporting to the CEO and is responsible for a host of critical issues at GSK, including compliance, risk management, data privacy, corporate security, and investigation. Nick is also chairman of the European Chief Compliance and Integrity Officers Forum. Nick, delighted to have you as a guest. Thank you for joining. Well, thanks. It's uh, great to be here, Viola. Now, I've actually had the privilege of already having some conversations with you about your professional journey and your current role. And in terms of your current role, I continue to be struck by the depth and breadth and unique positioning of that role. Well, Viola, you're right. It is quite a broad role, and it's something that I feel quite privileged but really enjoy uh, doing. I think it's important when you're in this type of role to have a holistic view of the whole company. And what this enables me to do is sort of understand all parts of the business but bring together all parts that are impacted by integrity, ethics and compliance and good corporate governance. Excellent. Now, I'm also conscious you've been talking to one of my colleagues, Daniel Efron, who's an associate professor of organizational behavior here at London Business School, about ethics and leadership. And in fact, it was my conversation with you and then a subsequent conversation with Daniel that made me feel it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't find a way of showcasing how some of Daniel's insights play out or inform the activities of a practitioner such as yourself. Yeah, it was really great talking to Daniel. And I think we established very quickly, we had a lot of sort of common areas. He understood from a sort of academia research point of view. And as we were talking, it became apparent that I was sort of providing the practitioner point of view and what really happens on an everyday basis in a in a big corporation like GSK. Great. But before we dive into the specifics of your role, Tell me a bit about your professional journey and the events that led you to be offered the role of Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer for GSK. Well, actually, first of all, I have to be uh, honest, Violet. It's not something I planned at the start of my career and something I actually stumbled upon, but actually found that I really enjoyed it. I joined GSK or Glaxo, as it was then, 27 years ago, and I actually joined in the first internal audit function the company had actually had. So if you think about it, 27 years ago, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world and one of the top FTSE companies in the UK didn't have either an internal audit function or a ethics and compliance function. Roll forward 27 years and we've got an audit function of around 150 and just under 400 in our ethics and compliance function. So it's something that I've been able to evolve and I've been part of that whole journey. But what really got me into this, I think, was in the internal audit side, I I got involved in a number 
of investigations and issues that were coming up. And what I really like to do is really understand what was the root cause of some of the problems and what could we do differently in the business to prevent them happening again. And it's evolved along those lines all the way through from, you know, when I started as a junior auditor to becoming chief ethics and compliance officer just over seven years ago. It's been great having sort of touched all different parts of the business, being involved with corporate scandals and other things as well. It's something that I'm very passionate about. Wow, 27 years. So you have really taken the function through growth and evolution. Yeah, one of the things that I always say to to my team is we've got to be an evolving organisation. We can't stand still. We do things very differently now than we did even five years ago, even a year ago through the pandemic. We've learned so much about doing things differently. And ethics and integrity is no different from any other part of the organisation. It looks for new ways to adapt. It has to adapt itself to new business practices, new organisations that may become part of a company as well. So it's something which continually evolves over time. Are you actually able to share with us some of the learnings that have emerged? Yeah, that's a couple of things I'd like to share. I think just from the the pandemic side, I think over the last uh, 12, 15 months as we've been going through this, first of all, we had to sort of really understand what the new risks were for the business because with our medical representatives not visiting healthcare practitioners, they were starting to work in different ways, more digitally. Our manufacturing sites around the world were not subject to the same inspections because regulators were not doing the same sort of visits. So we had to sort of put a new lens on there and think what could go wrong in the pandemic environment. So for all of our, what we call our enterprise risks, we put this new lens on there and identified the new risks uh, during the pandemic. And we constantly had to learn and evolve. One of the things we did, which I think we advanced much quicker during the pandemic than we would have been able to otherwise, it was the use of remote monitoring and actually measuring the risks, increased use of data analytics, AI and ML as well. We always had an ambition to do that, but I think the pandemic forced us to move much quicker and actually take a few more risks in in that space as well. Fantastic. So you had to take a learning mindset as opposed to a transactional mindset. And I suspect that involved also thinking very systemically about the impact of what you were doing across the organization. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in my role, I was used to visiting sites on a regular basis, having one-to-one interaction with uh, senior leaders and being on the ground, hearing what's actually going on. So you really do have to adjust that in a different way when you're unable to have the luxury of being able to fly around the world and sort of meet the the senior leaders in different parts of our organisation. Yeah. Now, pandemic aside, what would you say has been the most interesting project you've worked on since you've been at GSK? Well, it was one that really did have a profound impact on me, both personally and for me career point of view professionally as well. My experience in China back in uh, 2013, I spent just over a year there. And it was at the time when our offices in Shanghai were raided by law enforcement officials from the MPS. 
And we had allegations made upon us by the Chinese government of systemic bribery, totaling $800 million. And at that time, you know, I was uh, head of audit of GSK and the CEO at the time said, Nick, could you go out there for a couple of weeks and just be my eyes and ears and tell me what's going on? I spent 13 months there. So the two weeks were a little longer than I originally anticipated. But what I did at the beginning, it was part of establishing a crisis management team. Then it was starting to investigate and uh, work with our partners for an external counsel who were investigating or performing an independent investigation for us. And then it was about dealing with the regulators on both sides of the Atlantic and then also building a new compliance function that was going to be fit for purpose going forward uh, in China. I learned so much about the culture in China, about how important it was to, to do business in the right way. But also, I think the biggest learning for me is you can't have a one-size-fits-all ethics and integrity and compliance program that you roll out globally. You really do have to understand the local markets you operate in, and you need to adjust your training your monitoring, your business practices, policies, communication to fit that. And the only way you can do that is by understanding how business is being done there. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm delighted that you spoke about the national culture influence or that backdrop that you needed to think about and use to inform what you are doing. Because I, I suspect that if leaders are not being sensitive to those national culture nuances, it can potentially create big problems. Absolutely. You know, what's normal here in the UK or in the US or in, in the West is often very different in, in Asia or other parts of the world. So it's very important that you're able to sort of understand that if you're developing uh, programs from the centre, understand what the norm actually is as well. I've had the privilege of visiting probably over 70 different countries with my time at GSK. And I find it fascinating talking to our general managers around the world about what is the norm, what are the issues, what are the companies doing, what are the challenges. And it's only with that experience that you can actually put the uh, ethics and integrity programs together that are going to be effective. Now, let me just shift for a moment and get you to talk a bit about your work outside GSK because you regularly facilitate workshops to help business leaders create cultures in which ethical dilemmas are raised, discussed, and addressed proactively. So how do you encourage the participants in those workshops to start this type of work? It's so important to have these uh, discussions with leaders. And one of the things, actually both in GSK and outside of GSK, ethical dilemma discussions, as I call them, are led usually by leaders, but sometimes facilitated by myself, you know, are really sort of very enlightening. One of the things I like to put together are sort of ambiguous but real-life situations where there's no right or wrong answer. And, you know, always want to get people to participate. So I find one of the best ways to do this is give people a vote of saying whether it's red, you definitely can't do this. It's amber, not sure, we need more information, or green, go ahead. And actually getting people to commit to one of those and seeing where people plot themselves against other people is a really good way of getting that discussion going. What I do find is when you do that, 
and you make the sort of issues ambiguous enough but real enough, people are split between all of the different sort of alternatives there. And it's only as you get people still talking about why they selected their particular answer and other people listening, you start to find people move their positions as well because they say, well, I never thought of it in that way, but that's interesting to hear that. And I think leaders start to realise the power in having the discussions and bringing more people into that debate about what's the right or wrong thing to do. And again, it's it's encouraging to hear that that's the type of approach that you take, because one of the things I say with leaders that I work with is you can't necessarily do this stuff in your head. <laughs> you, you're exactly right. And you know, I think the most powerful is when leaders facilitate these discussions themselves. One of the things uh, I remember very well, I was at a leadership conference and I was asked to you know, talk about ethics and compliance. At the end, there was a a Q&A session and somebody stood up and sort of made the comment with a question and said, you know, wow, Nick, you know, you really do have a lot of accountability and responsibility at GSK, you know, really being accountable for owning compliance with so many laws and regulations. I said, hold on, you've got this wrong. You're accountable. The business is always accountable. If the regulators come knocking on the door, you're the person who may go to jail or gets interviewed. It's not the compliance officer. I'll help put the processes and the culture in place to enable you to do that, but you need to own this yourself. I sense by sharing that point of view, it also helps facilitate people realizing they need to talk these issues through as opposed to working it out by themselves in their head. I mean, I'm a firm believer in capability building through conversation. Totally agree. And and some of the best senior leaders I've seen, certainly at GSK and other companies as well, is senior leaders who are able to show some of their vulnerability when they do this as well, but they may not always have the answer straight away. So I've been in some discussions whereby the senior leader has perhaps deliberately got an answer wrong or placed his original idea in a different place to where he normally would, and then actually move as more discussion and said, well, actually, I hadn't thought of it that way. But now you've said that, I think I would do something slightly different here. And I think the more leaders talk about it themselves, show their own vulnerability, but they may not get it right first time themselves. I think the more people learn from that. Yeah. And can you just briefly explain in the context of that, what are the things that you feel go into creating an ethical environment? What are some of the things that leaders do or should think about? It's not something you sort of put a speech together and say, I'm going to deliver that at the, you know, the annual conference. It needs to be built into everyday activities. And it's a message that needs to be sort of reiterated all of the time. It can't just be, a, you know, today's compliance day and we don't have to think about it for another year. So I always encourage leaders to think about how they can embed it into all of their communications, all of their presentations, etc., as well. And actually sort of give real examples of when it's working. And it's not just about calling things out. It's so important that leaders do call things out if they see uh, something not working, because if they don't, everybody who's around them will assume it's okay. I was once in a large presentation when a presenter made an obvious error and mistake in in something he said. And actually, it wasn't corrected at that point in time. 
And as I observed this, I suddenly got concerned that actually there's a thousand people who now think that's correct. So I, you know, immediately made sure that actually we stopped and people were made aware that actually that wasn't the right thing to do and a mistake had been made. And unless you call it out at that moment in time, people won't learn. I think one of the other things creating a, a culture, it's about being seen doing the right thing as well. Being seen as a leader, doing even the smallest thing, you know, completely right. So it's vitally important that leaders do follow all of the policies and procedures. One example I saw in another company in a part of an organisation is where the senior leaders felt they didn't have to comply with the travel policy and were using non-preferred hotels or an inappropriate class of travel. And that very quickly became the norm for the whole company because they saw senior leaders doing that. So it's not what you can get away with. It's always being seen as doing the right thing, whether it's the smallest thing or right. something that's much more critical and of higher risk. So listening to you, Nick, I'm getting a very strong sense that the tone of those in authority positions and leading by example is important in cultivating a healthy ethical environment. Can you share some more examples of how this has been done in GSK? There's lots of examples that I can uh, think of here. And I'm sort of privileged to have worked with a lot of leaders who have demonstrated that they really buy into doing the right thing. So uh, that's always good to, to work for an organisation where that happens. I think one of the key things is making sure that your ethics and compliance program isn't seen as a sort of tick the box type program and something that leaders can say I've done and, you know, don't want to to look at it again until, you know, it's compliance day again or, you know, something like that. So the more, as I mentioned before, you can build it into everyday activities, the better. And one of the things that I really like to improve compliance is to sort of give people reminders as they go through activities. And now with a lot of our systems and workflow processes, we can actually put reminders in that actually make people think before they do things. One of the things I was talking to Daniel about is, you know, expense reporting. And actually, he's done some research in this area, and this is something that we do, but actually reminding people before they actually complete the expense report, as they start that activity, that give a certification that they've followed all of the policies and procedures and that everything is correct, actually gets people thinking and actually makes people more compliant as they actually go through the process of completing the expense form itself. I know Daniel's done research, which actually proves, I think it's, I can't remember the percentage increase in, in compliance, but it's significant enough to actually make a difference there. And we always look for those reminders in all of the activities we do. So in GSK, it's about putting the patient first and thinking about the impact on the patient at the end of the day. So the more senior leaders can talk about the impact on the patient, I think the more people are likely to do the right thing and do the right thing for the patient as well. Yeah, as a practitioner and an organizational psychologist, I'm very interested in nudge theory, which seems to be the platform that informs uh, some of the stuff that you've talked about. And that proposes using positive reinforcement reminders and direct suggestions. Absolutely. And I don't think anybody 
turns up to work and says, I'm going to do something bad today or I'm going to do something unethical. But it's the environment around them that can actually sometimes influence them to do the wrong thing. And actually using that sort of nudge theory, I think, is a great example of just reminding people to do the right thing. I think where, from my experience, is you've seen issues that are not sort of corrected in time. They tend to grow and become bigger and bigger and eventually perhaps become endemic within that group of people uh, as well. So it's so important that senior leaders are constantly sort of reminding people to do the right thing. And if you see something that's happening that shouldn't be happening, but it's corrected at that moment in time. Yeah. And what that makes me think about is also the importance of realizing what you don't say Absolutely. Is also just as important. So if you're seeing something and you don't say something about it, people will take note. Absolutely. I think it's a bit like the travel example again. If you don't call somebody out who's not following the policies or doing the right thing, everybody assumes it's for, it's okay. And you suddenly find, you know, everybody's doing the wrong thing because they think it's the norm and uh, okay to do that. So one of the things I'm keen to get some more thoughts on, which is around leaders not falling into the trap of thinking, well, this could never happen to me. Any thoughts you can share on how you can help leaders, employees not fall into that? Yeah, one of the things that I've always done when I've visited different parts of the company, I always ask leaders of different parts of the organization, I said, you know, what do you see going wrong at other companies, etc.? And they'll always give me a list of issues and other companies are doing this and it's unfair because they get away with it, etc. Then I always ask them afterwards to say, well, how do you know that's not happening here? Mm. And they said, well, it can't happen here. We just don't do that. But I said, well, how do you know that? And as you sort of dig deeper they find it very often, well, the best ones can explain that they've got the right training in place, they've got the right oversight, and various other things they do to build that right culture. But very often, people aren't able to fully explain that. And it gets them thinking a little bit more, what do they need to do in their own organisations to get the assurance that the right thing is happening uh, all of the time? Yeah, that's a great approach. And I sense that also short circuits this situation that leaders can get in where they just over-rationalize things? Oh, absolutely. When we've seen many organizations, large organizations who, you know, we all thought were well-controlled and did the right thing, whether that's, you know, Volkswagen, whether it's BP, whether it's Wells Fargo, whether it's some of the issues that we've had in GSK as well. I think, you know, People over-rationalised and, you know, thought, well, it couldn't happen here. And it can happen anywhere. And you need to have the right assurance in place for all of your stakeholders to show that you have really thought about what you're doing to make sure that that doesn't happen. One of the things I really like to do as well, and it fits in with the the leader-led discussions, ethical dilemma type discussions that I mentioned before is, there's so many learnings that you can take from other companies is turn them into case studies and think about why couldn't this happen here or could this happen here and really have those discussions about the learnings from other companies. Don't let it happen to yourself. Learn from others. 
And there's always things that when we do this, we think we could do differently. There's always opportunities to evolve uh, and learn from others. So I encourage everybody to, to do that. There's so many you know, fantastic examples out there that you can use. And they make great uh, sort of discussions with leaders from different parts of the business. Yeah. And I often use scenarios in, in my work as well. And I say to the leaders I work with, this is almost like working your muscle around this topic or this issue. So when or if you do find yourself in this situation, that you've developed some thinking around how you might address it, who you may need to involve, who you need to speak with, etc. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues that GSK had in China I remember talking to you know my peers in other companies and many of them told me that this could have happened to us and that they were able to take the opportunity of learning from the GSK experience and doing things differently. Super. Well, Nick, it's been great hearing your insights today. So just two final questions before we close. So what one or two things would you suggest organizations who are really thinking about developing a stronger ethical culture start to do? Okay, well, first of all, I'd make sure you've got people in your ethics and compliance uh, functions who really understand the business because it's so important to understand the business. We talked about understanding the culture and it's understanding the culture in different parts of the world, but also within sort of different parts of your organizations as well. I find working in the industry, I do the healthcare industry, that scientists think very differently to people in finance or people in procurement. So it's really being able to understand the different cultures within your organisation. And the biggest advice is I would say, make sure you keep ethics top of mind and really build it into everything uh, you do. Annual training doesn't work. You need to keep it sort of ongoing all the time and build it into to all of your different types of training you have. So they're just a, a few things that I would recommend for others to do, but there's probably many other things uh, on top of that. Right. And what advice might you give to organizations who may be seen as quite sophisticated in terms of dealing with ethical practices and ethical leadership? What are the things you would say, even though they may feel that they're at the top of their game? I would say never be complacent because you're only as good as today and you're only as good as your last investigation. So if you look at the way cyber risks have changed, it's so hard to keep up with that and you constantly have to evolve to the different types of cyber threats. And I think all areas of ethics and compliance are the same. Really think about what are the issues of tomorrow going to be and uh, how do you make sure that you've got the right sort of processes, policies and, and culture in place to deal with that. That's great. Well, thanks again, Nick. A fascinating conversation. Thank you for inviting me to take part today. It's always great to be here, Viola. You've been listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Just search London Business School in your podcasting app of choice. To receive a curated selection of articles, podcasts, and films direct to your inbox each fortnight, subscribe to Think at London Business School, the place to go for thought leadership and business insights from London Business School faculty and alumni. 
just tap the link in the show notes below. Also, don't forget to check out the activities and thought leadership pieces emerging from the London Business School Leadership Institute. Links to our website can also be found in the show notes below. Thanks again for joining us.